But first, in 1889, one of the wealthiest men in America publicly announced that he was going to give away all his money. And not just that. In a pair of essays which together became known as the Gospel of Wealth, Andrew Carnegie argued that the wealthy had a moral duty to give it away. The Gospel of Wealth by Andrew Carnegie. The problem of our age is the proper administration of wealth. I've read the Gospel of Wealth 20 times, 50 times. I was giving a class to uh, high school teachers, and they wanted a primary source, so I read it again. And I came out of this last reading just astounded. He says in the Gospel of Wealth, capitalism generates huge inequality, and that's the way it's got to be. So what do we do? The capitalists have to start giving back their money. That's David Nassau, the biographer of Andrew Carnegie. When Andrew Carnegie sold his steel company to J.P. Morgan in 1901, the Carnegie Steel Company was valued at more than $400 million. Carnegie had been giving his money away for three decades, most famously in the form of free public libraries, which he gifted to two and a half thousand communities around the world. I mean, the scope of his philanthropy is extraordinary. He thinks the people of Pittsburgh should be able to see a dinosaur. So he sends an expedition to Arizona to dig up dinosaurs. And then he thinks the people of the world should see dinosaurs. So he creates molds from his dinosaur bones in a warehouse and creates fake dinosaurs that he gives to museums all over the world. He thinks people should have access to classical music. He buys pipe organs for churches so that working people, when they go to church, are going to get good classical music. He creates what he calls bathhouses, but which are really gyms, meeting rooms and community centers. And later in life, he becomes the number one peace activist probably in the world. So what drove his radical philanthropy? Let me tell you how Carnegie begins. Carnegie's fortune is made by his mother because his mother decides to relocate the family from Dunfermline, Scotland. Mrs. Carnegie, understanding that her boys, Andrew and his younger brother, had no future in Dunfermline, put them on a boat, borrowed some money, and took them to what was then known as Allegheny City which is today part of Pittsburgh and was then just over the river in Independent City. Carnegie knew damn well that as a little man, he was maybe four foot ten, four foot eleven, who didn't dig the coal, who didn't mine the iron, who didn't run the railroad trains, who didn't stoke the ovens or keep the ovens, who wasn't a barrow man who moved the molten steel to the molds, he knew that wealth is not created by the capitalist, by the entrepreneur, but by the larger community. He knew damn well that if his mother hadn't moved him to Pittsburgh, where within 50 miles there was iron and coal, 
And Pittsburgh, which was the gateway to the West, he would have been a shopkeeper, someone probably a successful shopkeeper, but a shopkeeper. He understood as well that if he had not arrived in America before the Civil War, come of age after the Civil War, when the population is expanding and moving west, there would have been no need for the trains and for his steel. So from a very early age, he understands that this money doesn't belong to him. Serious obstacles to the improvement of our race is indiscriminate charity. It were better for mankind that the millions of the rich were thrown into the sea than so spent as to encourage the slothful, the drunken, the unworthy. Of every thousand dollars spent in so-called charity today, it is probable that $950 is unwisely spent. Everybody who's written about Carnegie says that when he becomes a philanthropist, he becomes a softer, nicer, gentler, more humane individual. The opposite is true. Carnegie knows that he's going to give away his fortune from very early on. Before he's even got that fortune, he's going to give it away. So what that means is he feels that he is entitled to exploit his workers to create a larger fortune to give back to the community. Now, I'm sure he doesn't call it exploiting, though, doesn't it? I mean, in his own mind, is, is that the calculation he's making? Boy, that's a good question. Yes. Yes, I think so. There's this great scene, which I write about in my biography, it's a wonderful scene when he returns to Pittsburgh to dedicate one of his libraries. And for this ceremony, the mayor is there and the governor and the leaders of church and schools and universities. There's a procession and they all line up in this library. And he gives his prepared speech. And at the end of the speech, he looks and all the way in the back, he looks out and he says, and I see workers here. He said, and some of you may work for my steel mills. He said, and you're thinking to yourselves, why didn't he pay us more? He'd have less to give away and might have had to build a less grand library. But why didn't he give us our fair share? I'll tell you why. Because if I had raised your wages, you would have spent it on a better cut of meat maybe some thing to drink that you shouldn't be drinking. He said, but that's not what you need. What you need are libraries, museums, concert halls. He said, and it is for the best, for the community and for your children that it works out this way. So, so he knew what he was doing and... As he becomes a philanthropist, he becomes, you know, more exploitive. I mean, he institutes a 12-hour day. He puts his workers on shifts so they work six 
and a half days. They get a half day off so that they can switch from days to nights. They work 12 hours. And in order to pay his workers as little as possible so that he does not have to improve conditions in the plants that result in, you know, untold injuries and deaths from workplace accidents, he's got to break the union, and he breaks the union. The man who dies leaving behind many millions of available wealth, which was his to administer during life, will pass away unwept, unhonored, and unsung. No matter to what uses he leaves the dross which he cannot take with him. Of such as these, the public verdict will then be, the man who dies thus rich, dies disgraced. The apex of Carnegie's influence, I think, comes in the last 20 years. When Vartan Gregorian becomes the president of the Carnegie Corporation, and he preaches the gospel of philanthropy. He brings it to the West Coast, and he preaches it and does so brilliantly to Gates, to Buffett, to a variety of fabulously wealthy uh, new wealth and, you know, convinces them that this is their responsibility hmm. to give away their money as Carnegie did. So it's a delayed consequence by almost 100 years. This, yeah, there's a delayed consequence. But, but you can understand why philanthropy would appeal to millionaires as it appealed to Carnegie because they are convinced, as Carnegie was, of their intrinsic brilliance that if they've made these gazillions of dollars, they have a will, they have a capacity, they have a series of intellectual and cognitive skills that if they turn to spending that money to save the universe, who better than they? And at the same time that trust in government declines, Right, right. In large part because these millionaires are saying, you know, regulation is bad for us, big government is bad for the people. So the importance and the rhetoric of philanthropy and the philanthropic sector is, you know, is ramped up. Carnegie always claimed that he, you know, was an American through and through and he was a right. loved democracy and he hated the hereditary dynasties of Europe um, and the, the kings and queens should be eliminated and the people rule. But he didn't believe in rule by the people. He believed in rule by the fittest who had survived. Right. And right. how do they do that? By bypassing government through philanthropy. And when you look at the ways in which American society is developed with philanthropy creating our universities, our colleges, our museums, our concert halls, I mean, I can go on and on.
in ways that were unimaginable in Europe, where the government sponsored these cultural and artistic enterprises. I mean, that's, that's the gift of Andrew Carnegie. David Nassau is professor of history at the City University of New York and the author of Andrew Carnegie, published by the Penguin Press. 